1: An important podcast, this one, as the markets tumble, as people panic buy, we've got a historical, we've got the long view on coronavirus, on influenza. We're talking to one of the world's leading virologists. Professor John Oxford is the UK's top expert on influenza. He's Emerita Professor of Virology at the University of London. His work on the 1918 strain of influenza, known as Spanish flu, is world famous. He's the founder of Retro Screen Virology. Uh, and that is a leader in the fields of vaccine antiviral clinical trials over the last 20 years. He's a man who works trying to create antiviral drugs every day, but he's also a man who's gone into enormous detail looking at the outbreak of influenza during and after the First World War. And I just wanted to ask him some very simple questions. What are the lessons from history? What are the lessons from previous influenza outbreaks that can help us overcome this one? One of the reasons, surely, for knowing your history is so that we are armed, we are forewarned, we are prepared for the next time similar events happen to those that have happened in the past. Nothing is ever, of course, a perfect parallel, a perfect reflection, but there are things that we learn in all sorts of fields that we can build on and improve and can potentially provide us with a lifeline in times like this. Um, For those of you who have been asking how they can support us at Team History Hit, The best way to do that is to subscribe to History Hit TV. We've taken lots of the back catalogue, lots of the archive now off iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts. The whole podcast archive is exclusively there on History Hit TV, along with hundreds of history documentaries as well. We're trying really hard to make it one of the best history resources on the planet, so please, please uh, head over there to historyhit.tv and subscribe. You can use the code POD1, you get 30 days free and then you get your first month, which is one pound, euro or dollar. So that's uh, that's a pretty sweet deal. So thank you very much. Uh, head over to historyhit.tv to use that code, POD1. In the meantime, everybody, here is Professor John Oxford. I really hope you find this useful. Enjoy. Uh, John, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, pleasure. So we are, uh, you're a brilliant human being because you, you, you're, a, you're a scientist, but also a historian, really. So you can help us untangle the lessons of the great flu pandemic of the, uh, of the second decade of the 20th century. Um, let's start with things that we can learn, because you've broadcasted about this subject uh, very, very effectively. What is, the, what is the number one lesson that human beings, that scientists derived from the great flu pandemic of the, of the First World War and the years following?
2: well i tell you what um i derive from it personally but I can, before i do that let me say one thing you mentioned um, i've got an interest in history but i also have a medical um historian in tow with me and that's douglas gill and so we tend to work together on that i, I tend to do the virology and a bit of the history he tends to do the history in the spot of virology so that we make quite a nice team now your question about um what do i pull out from when i think uh, about the outbreak what i what i pull out is um, based on the great Gauguin painting, the great scientific painting, the last one he painted, the one he loved most, the one they can't move out, of the, the, out, of, out from Boston where, where it is. And it, it's a great painting as a triptych. Where have we come from? He titled it, Where Have We Come From? Who Are We? And Where Are We Going? And I often think of that because it is absolutely perfect for this sort of thing, a great infection. So where have we come from? We have come from a world of infection. That's Gauguin's world. We're still in that world. Uh, things have not changed in a hundred or how many years it is. Uh, from Gauguin's time, 1890, he painted it, I think. Um, it is still a world of infection. We've only eradicated two organisms, that's smallpox and rinderpest. All the other bacteria and viruses are still out there. So we're still in a world of infection. And then he asked the question, where are we going? Well, I think we're, 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 we're still there. Hopefully... We are going in a more scientific direction than we have in the past. But I think even there, I I worry about it sometimes with people who believe that evolution didn't happen, there's a flat earth and all that sort of thing. And then the biggest question of all, who are we? And I think in these great cataclysmic events, and I'm not saying this, the one at the moment, is a great cataclysmic event, but it is certainly stirring everyone up, including myself. uh, we, We don't know how we're going to react until we're faced with it. And I remember this, when the SARS outbreak started, I had a telephone call, fairly irate, an agitated call from a lady anaesthetist. And she said, look, first of all, you don't know anything about it. And I said, well, none of us know anything about it. Um, and secondly, she said, well, I'm on the front line. I don't want to be here. I didn't join. If I wanted to be on the front line, I could I could sign up with, with Medicines Sans Frontieres. But here I am, an anaesthetist, and I'm not coming into work. So I thought then, you know, we are confronted. We don't know until we get that confrontation uh, what is going to happen? And I give everything to those nurses and doctors at the moment in China, particularly, which is where we're facing. If we want to find out anything about this, how to stop it, where it came from, all this sort of thing, they've already gave their lives. Some of them um, in this endeavour to stop an infection, and that will happen here as well. Right. Well, that's the that's the that's the big
1: <laughs> that's the big headline thought. Thank you. What What was the nature of the uh, flu outbreak? that began in, in sort of 1917, 18. What we hear now about this um, being a, a, a disease that attacks the respiratory system, we hear that it disproportionately affects people who are immunocompromised or older people. Is that different or similar to 1917?
2: What hit them in 1918, I think, in the face, and what hits us and what hits me when I go into a library and look around, is the, the people who were hit themselves hit by the, this great wave of the first great wave that came in in 1918 in the summer of 1918 and there were young people they were not the elderly group they were not the particularly young group they were there they were a specific age there were 27 28 29 and 30 year olds that's where the highest mortality was and to, to be frank about it we are still grappling with that why did it hit that particular age group and and you're quite right we are we are grappling with things from the past and trying to work out indeed what happened there and I think as we do that that can give us a pointer here we found out all of us working around the world on this on this project uh, that or we think we found out that they, they must have had a particular history these 28, 29, 30 coming from the past they must have um, either missed out a, a flu wave you know 20 years before um, and or alternatively, the opposite. They they've got one for themselves, but they ha- they were different. They must have been different um, in their past history of flu. And then for some reason or other, they were knocked off their feet. The elderly group, who where you would normally expect, as should quite rightly say, to, to be hit on the head, like what's happening now with COVID-19, they were completely free of it. They sailed through the 1918. Unfortunately, the younger age group, the children, didn't sail through. They were afflicted, not as bad as the 27, 28, 29-year-olds, but they were certainly afflicted. And, of course, that is one of the big conundrums at the moment with the COVID because uh, it's not seen to be producing much pathology or much um, serious infection in children. It's just going for the other age groups and the elderly.
1: What was done in... Was anything effective done in uh, the, the, the great flu pandemic that helped to lessen them well are there any successes are there any things that we can that we can use today to combat this next pandemic
2: yes there's there's a lot i think because after all when i wake up in the morning i woke up this morning um thinking we're going to do this i thought right what i really like to do And what i really like to have is a pill in my pocket labelled anti-COVID-19 or anti-coronavirus pill that I could take if I'd been in contact with a case or if I began to get ill, take the tablet. That is an antiviral drug. But there isn't such a pill. The second thing I'd like to have is a diagnostic kit, one that would give me the answer in 15 minutes. And I think that could be developed, but certainly not at the moment. And the other thing I'd like to have for the more medium term is a vaccine. Well, that's not there either. So in a sense... This is the awesome thing about it. We're sitting here now in the same sense. If we'd been a hundred, whatever it is, hundred and twenty years ago, um which is, we were uh, as we we are un- unarmed, and that's not a very happy situation to be in either. I can I can tell you that. And it's the first time I've ever been in such a situation in a pandemic. And I've gone through the flu pandemics in 57, 68, you know, um, seventy-seven, two thousand nine. There's always been this this back. Ground, if we've got something behind us, don't worry, we will we'll be okay. Antibiotics and all that. Here, um, we're pretty helpless in a way, and I sometimes wonder why we've got ourselves in this spot. But having said all that, in 1918, they really began to get a moving on. They used the same sort of techniques that we're using now: quarantine, public health, hand washing. Of course, the pictures are famous from that time with the masks. Everyone, you know, the New York policemen wearing masks, the famous uh, picture of what was going on in 1918. But the same sort of ways of doing it. And it did seem to work because they published, people have gone through the data uh, a few years ago of what happened in the great cities in the United States, for example. And they compared them. They compared what action they took. If they took no action at all, and some of them didn't take any action, for reasons best known to themselves. Uh, the, the, the riots were already in, caused, caused trouble, a lot of trouble, um, deaths and illness and that. And they were all out again, just roared through. In those, and they were caught napping. They, they couldn't cope with it. In, country, in in cities where they said, right, we'll try hand-washing um, and then we'll see how that goes. And, and then if that doesn't work, we'll, we'll go on to a mask. And if that doesn't work, we'll go on to social distancing. That didn't do much good either. This, 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 just try this, try that, try something else. In those cities where they threw everything at this virus, everything at the same time, the hand washing, the masks, the social distancing, the closing of schools, the closing of theatres, threw it at them. What happened there was uh, you you flattened the, the epidemic hit. The curve, which was going up in other cities, didn't go up so steeply it was kind of prolonged but that meant you had you had more time to deal with things There wasn't so much panic around flapping around because you could keep businesses going keep things going as the outbreak was prolonged so they 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 did things they they some cities did and you can ask why some did and some didn't and there's there's a danger point there as well so uh if in in
1: 1918 to 19, what what are the approximate dates what what was the, do we think it began in 17 or did it begin in 18
2: I think personally, uh, it began in, 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 in. There were indications in the British Army um, of, of things going on, of respiratory things going on in in, 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 in Shop Barracks, for example, where the recruits were coming in in about 1916. And by the end of 1916, in the winter of 1916-17, uh, there was uh, there began to be outbreaks of. It wasn't apparent immediately to the pathologists, and they were on the lookout for things because. By the First World War, the British Army and other armies had realised that the infection was a thing that could decimate an army. You know, since the Bell War, you had to make sure, and the Crimean War, you make sure the infection was down. And the increase the hygiene, hand washing, disinfected, and what they're all doing that. But in spite of that, by 1916 17, there was quite a lot of, it seemed to be a lot of strange deaths around mainly in the great army camps that were pulled in in older shop barracks near London and along the Western Front. And to get a grasp of all this, we have to appreciate the size of this endeavour on the Western Front. Britain was emptied or half emptied of all its doctors, all its pathologists all and, and nurses, not all of them, about, about 60% of them were moved to the Western Front and they joined these huge encampments all the way along for a 100 miles along there um, where these hospitals were built. Uh, pathology laboratories were built and they were set up to bring in casualties, war wounded, and then they began to bring in casualties as well, of medical casualties and they began to note that something was up and a small team of pathologists three of them actually, uh, working at Etapa, which is one of the biggest um, camps, holding maybe 30 holding on one day 100,000 troops while they were sorted out, they had enough hospitals for 20,000 uh, so it was a big endeavour uh, and in that environment, they began to notice something odd, but it wasn't until a pathologist arrived and a morbid anatomist arrived just after Christmas that they began to sort out exactly what was going on. And then they realized that a lot of these soldiers had been dying. They'd been dying of something that was strangely looking like influenza in the pathology. It looked a little strange, but then they thought to themselves, well, if it was influenza, why wasn't it spreading? Could it be influenza? And so they decided on a halfway house. It was new, this disease. They published it in the Lancet. It was new, but perhaps it wasn't quite influenced. It was something else. It wasn't spreading. So maybe they didn't, didn't have to panic on it. Now, all these years later, we can look back and say, well, hang on a minute. That's just like it is in Hong Kong at the moment or over the years, the recent years. There's been a bird flu, could spread around the world, but it's not. It's just holding itself in Hong Kong for the moment. Perhaps it will spread, but it's not at the moment. And I think that's what was happening at Etapta. At that moment, they discovered it was a high mortality in those soldiers, just like bird flu is a high mortality in Hong Kong when it hits people. But it's not got the the ability to spread. So at the moment, it needs to mutate and change. And I think the outbreak, personally, the outbreak started there in Europe in 1916-17. The conflicting idea, the other idea, is that it started in the United States, in Kansas. Uh, a, a more or less a bit later than that, at the same time. So there's no, and that China is a possibility, but very low down on the scheme of things for for starting.
1: By the time it's sweeping through, famously the big US cities. Uh, how does it compare? And we all know the figures now. We're all, all amateurs like me. Are all terribly knowledgeable now? A little bit of information is a dangerous thing. And we talk about 3.4 percent at the World Health Organization. And uh, what, what 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 kind of it, it, was the disease similar to, the, in terms of its danger, to, to what we are seeing today?
2: No, I don't, I don't. I wouldn't put it like that. I think there's too much um, comparison. It, it definitely works people up, as you say. Everyone, we've all got to think. I go to meetings. It, it's pretty strange. and I always have, and people argue. Even scientists argue. Oh, they say, well, did 50 million people die, or did 60 million people? And then, the flash of a moment, we've we've got rid of 10 million people. And sometimes I've been to meetings where a hundred million people have died in 1918. So we bandy around the figures, and to uh, personally, I think that it's, it unnerves people. It unnerves me, and I've spent a lifetime in it. Uh, and I rather concentrate on one. What I'm, what I'm always want to do with this pandemic is look at one person who died, and then from that, you can you can get something useful from it. How did that one person react? How did their family react? Um, and you can then multiply it by the figure you like. I don't think this outbreak now, the COVID nineteen, it has got any similarity in numbers to the to the nineteen or to indeed any other flu pandemic. Because after all, um, in recent pandemics, you'd, I mean, this recent year in 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 um, England, we've had five six thousand people die of flu. No one seemed to bother about it. They've only just stopped dying because of the end of the flu season, the end of the winter. And that's one thing I think about this COVID nineteen. It's, 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 it's missed its chance, actually, because they love the wintertime. We're all crowded indoors, swapping, exchanging tails with each other and getting infected. Once the spring starts, all these respiratory infections begin to drop. Um, and you could look at it another way in the pandemic of 1918. That virus hit, first of all, it went in a big way in, the, in June that year, May, June that year. It's not far from where we are now. But it hit the summer. It didn't do all that well. It didn't do all that well at all, and and everyone relaxed. And then by November, back it came, and people didn't relax. That's when the main mortality, of the figures we talking about, a lot of it, about half of the mortality came in October, November, 1918. And then I suppose people relaxed again, which is a, not not, nice, not a sensible thing to do because in February it was back again, and and the other the other half got swallowed up. So that is telling us that. Beware of these respiratory viruses. Um, take all the precautions you can, that they won't knock in and knock everyone off, as it were, in one great wave. They won't. It'll be a number of waves. So that can give some reassurance um, of, of what could happen now. But be pretty careful with them. And that when they're in this way, they're unpredictable. They do like the seasonal they do. They can come in the summer, but they like the winter period, as all these respiratory infections do. And that is a big, a big component, a negative component. The spring and the summer can be a positive affair.
1: So the, the best practice you're saying in 1918 with, with um, squished down that big, that, that squished, flattened the graph effectively. What, what else could have been done? I mean, what have, what have we learned in the hundred years since that is going to make us even more resilient and better able to, to deal with this? This is After Dark. Myths, misdeeds and the paranormal.
2: The podcast that takes you to the shadiest corners of the past... Unpicking history's spookiest, strangest, and most sinister stories. I'm Maddie Pelling.
1: And I'm Anthony Delaney. Join us every Monday and Thursday, and we'll take a look at the darker side of history, from haunted pubs to Houdini to witch trials and arsenic-laced breakfasts.
2: Follow After
0: Dark, myths, misdeeds, and the paranormal wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by History Hit.
1: Aura has got a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting auraframes.com to get thirty dollars plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's a u r a frames.com. Use code Dan Snow at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply.
2: We've learnt that um, they they struggled. That they were faced with something that we've had preparation for. Do you remember we've had plans drawn up? Every country in the world was asked by the World Health Organization since 1997 when the bird flu began moving from birds to humans to prepare for a pandemic, get the plans out, every factory, every you know, we've got plans all over the place. They're bulging out of doors, the plans. Uh, but the biggest lesson is to move with all you've got quickly. Uh, that's what I derived from it. Why wait if you're going to have all this, these things like the, the, the layered approach? Why are you doing the one bit a minute, one this? Why are you saying let's hand, ban handshaking now, but we'll let kissing go ahead? Or you know, it, it just seems silly. It just seems silly, and it seems as though we've not learnt anything from from 1918. What I've learnt from it was, faced with a new virus like this, you throw everything at it as soon as possible.
1: Is the is the, the counter argument, of course, that you know, poor old poor old politicians don't hear that very often, but they're trying to balance. Uh, the resilience to a new disease against kind sort of widespread economic dislocation that could have you know years, and we know people die when when the economy goes south, people lose their jobs, people at the margins economic margin society uh suffer extreme hardship and actually mortality goes up there so is it you, i mean is it quite difficult for politicians to know? When it's, a, you know, is, this is not a drill. This is the real one. I mean, w- what are the signals that you have to, what are the triggers for when you would say, right, let's let's throw the kitchen sink at it?
2: Well, I, I say the, the trigger that I have is when the, when the infection starts in your own country and you think it could be pandemic because you've just looked at another country, that is China. Um, and you look there and you say, oh, my goodness me, what's going on? Although we, we have to remember that in China now, they've had 3,000 deaths in a population of, what, 1 billion? Um, they've had maybe 100,000 infections in in a population of a billion. So it's not as though the whole country has been swarmed over with it. And that's another lesson we learned from 1918 and from subsequent pandemics, actually, in 57, 68, that uh, this virus does not come in. These viruses, that's flu. They don't come in, and I suspect this is the same with COVID-1918, they don't come in and sweep over the whole country um, like that. They will come in waves, and even in a wave, some areas won't be hit at all. So you could have a situation where London, you know, where there's a lot of people moving, coming in flight, gets, gets a whack. And up in Northamptonshire or somewhere, they wonder what on earth's going on. Um, so it would be, it could be spotted. And sometimes these pandemics, and that's what I was hoping in 1968. I was a, a virologist by 1968. and I remember the discussion in the lab. Sir so Charles Stuart Harris was the one in charge and he was very, he was always a bit bossy. And, uh, he came in and he said, right, you know, this is it. 68, it's going to come roaring in, you know, but it didn't. It went roaring in the United States and in England, nothing happened or hardly anything happened. And the next year, not all that much happened. And then the, the year after it, it did. So there was a delay. Um, in some European countries and some European countries didn't get in at all. And I remember Poland, they said, "What well, this pandemic in 68, well, what's it all about then? So it can be a bit dotted around and not consistent as well. And that can, can sometimes help you. Now, as regards politicians and virologists, people like me, I'm not doing their job for them. That's up to them to do their job. My job is to a- analyse the medical scientific impact of a great infection. And I think that i would i would not want to see that I'm not going to sacrifice my granddad just because they some because they, something can carry on and make some money and that's not the way I look at it i'm I'm here to prevent and do all my best to prevent getting ill, prevent people getting ill, and prevent people dying of a of a, a disease that is nasty, and in the end will be prevented i wouldn't want to look back after this and say my my grandchildren I've got plenty of them I can tell you and they'll say to me well what did you do then granddad during the great COVID-19 and I say well I sat on my hands did nothing or I was very worried about whether whether um the railway companies would make less money during that time there's less traveling I don't want to be involved in that that's not my 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 mom is saying well I helped I tried to develop a vaccine I tried to develop a mask or an antiviral and persuade people to go out there and and not shake hands, not kiss, not hug, not do those things that this virus loves. I mean, you don't catch this virus on the road or on a tree. You catch it from someone else, and you catch it when they breathe on you or cough on you either way, and they're pretty close to you. So the simple thing is to keep away from people, which is called social distancing.
1: Okay, so there we go. So another lesson from history, social distancing. Talk us through it. So if you... Maintain that invisible box. Is it a two metre square around yourself?
2: Yes, less than that, I think, and myself, but you can argue it out. Uh, because there's a lot of information that's been taken out of the flu world, the plans and all that, and just thrown across to the COVID-19 world. And I'm not so sure that it's all, all applicable. And this, this two metre business, if you, and I think now we're thinking less that these infections are spread by coughing and sneezing. You know, you don't sneeze when you've got flu. And I don't think you sneeze when you got COVID-19. You cough, but you're not coughing all the time. What you're mainly doing all the time is breathing. So you ask yourself, well, hang on a minute. The virus is in your upper airways and perhaps in your lower airways. It's there in very large numbers. We're talking about a billion, ten billion viruses in a small area. Uh, so when you breathe, do they come pushed out with your breath because you're breathing a lot of litres of air all the time? Uh, so is it tidal breathing that's that's um, spreading it? And my answer is, I think it is. And and the way I look at it is if you get close enough to someone to smell their breath, if they've had garlic for breakfast and you can smell garlic, you are breathing in their breath and they're breathing in yours. And so that is pretty close. It's probably a couple of feet away and you're facing them out as well. Which is why handshaking is is should be curtailed in spite of the virologist's our Prime Minister virologist and the American President virologist telling us that they're going to continue doing things they've always done. The thing about handshaking is it brings you close into someone and you face them normally and so you begin to smell their breath and you will begin to pick up their viruses I think. So you know there are there are things that we can do and I hope people are going to do it as soon as possible.
1: Okay so social, social distancing uh, works, that's a, a good lesson from history. What um, in terms of our resilience as a society? In terms of you know, we now have amazing people like you working away at stuff. Uh, are, are we? Uh, uh, it's a Stupid question from a layperson, but developing um, developing uh, drugs that can help. How how different are we now to where we were in 1918 with our AI and our teams of people like you?
2: Well, it's not it's not a silly question to ask. And in fact, when I look back now a few years, I think, I think, what have we done? Are we responsible? As someone like, am I responsible as a virologist? Why didn't I react differently in after 2003? So here was a coronavirus. I, I, I dealt with coronaviruses like 50 years ago when I was a student. I used to, there were innocent little things, innocent family, in the humans anyway, uh, causing respiratory disease, coughs. And they were among the common cold viruses that we all have every year. They're still around, they're still around now but they're, they're innocent. They're not, they've never cured anyone in their life, as far as I can see, a coronavirus. And I had a little task. They'd just been isolated, these coronas, down at the Common Cold Unit in Salisbury, a quarantine unit where they studied these Common Colds. And my little task was to grow it out, look at it, and you break my, my, break my hands, get myself into the laboratory. Um, and so I'd had a history of looking at them, dealing with them. And suddenly in 2003, what happens? So this SARS coronavirus suddenly appears. Now, uh, we were all taken by you know a coronavirus causing that. Don't believe it, but it did. But of course, what happened was using the public health methods that we're using now, quarantine, social distancing, so on. It was snuffed out really. Alongside the fact that these coronas don't—they haven't got the get, get up and go that influenza has got. You just don't. They just don't. If we were in this this infection caused by influenza, we wouldn't be talking about three deaths as bad as that is, and sixty cases. We'd be talking about. And a thousand deaths, or a couple of thousand, and a hundred thousand cases. It was flu, it's got the get up and go, and it's got the zip. But these, these coronaviruses don't have that, so you could say, Well, all right, the, the we hit SARS and it hit itself on the head. Six thousand people in a globe of eight billion got infected in 20 different countries and then it vanished. Now, the that was the problem because it, it did its duty, it did its damage, which wasn't very nice. And then we all thought, well, it's over. This is a very rare phenomenon, Corona. You know, it's a one in a poking a moon sort of thing. So how could I go along, I suppose, is my only excuse to a pharmaceutical group and say, why well, don't you spend two billion pounds making a vaccine? And they turn around and say, well, how many people died? And I say, well, 300. And they said, well, you know, <laughs> there are other more important infections around. And the same with antivirals and the same with diagnostic kits. And so we coasted along until a few years and suddenly there was another one coming from a camel uh, and from a bat. The, the SARS came from a bat to a civic cat in a market in Guangdong. The next one came from a, a bat into possibly a rat and then into a camel and then into humans in Saudi. Uh, and still we didn't react. And now suddenly we got this one. So I think there's been a lack of reaction, I must say that, on the part of the scientific community, the virological community, when really perhaps we should have got our kit together and got moving. Well, don't blame
1: yourself. But I, uh, but because um, I'm sure you still have more than nearly everybody else on the planet put together. But I, but I'm asking, like, what it now that now that you are taking it seriously, uh, are, are are we are, are you hopeful? I mean, can things move much faster than they did in 1918, for
2: example? Well, that's a, a nice way of putting it. Everything's moving faster, and <clears throat> I think the population movements that helps the virus move around. My goodness, the number of people traveling. My children they never seem to be around. They're always in Timbuktu or somewhere, you know. Um, You'd get on a plane, go, pay £50, and you're there. So it's a world of movement that's fantastic for a virus spreading. Um, but on the other hand, it helps us communicate with... with I'm in touch with people. I'm phoning daily to Australia to, find, to talk to my colleague there to find out what's going on and so on and so forth. So we're in touch, all right, and that helps as well. So we are, I think we're, we're reacting more. And I noticed um, recent what pleased me, 50,000 molecules... With, for repurposing what's called repurposing we've all been busy making drugs against HIV hepatitis C B influenza there's a new influenza drug um but uh, we can maybe repurpose them we can say well we we've developed this drug against um smallpox I mean for example years and years, and years ago could that possibly have an effect against COVID-19 out of all expectations so 50,000 of those arrived last week at probably the most famous laboratory, Eric de Klerk's laboratory in the University of Louvain in Belgium. These are probably the most famous antiviral chemotherapists. 50,000 of these drugs arrived. Now they're going to screen the whole lot against this new virus in the laboratory and see if one of them um, will be a hit. They can do that quite quickly. There's already three hits. Um, there's, there's remdesivir. There is a, a nucleotide analogue drug, which I think looks pretty good. And yeah, a young virologist from... Holland has put it through a macaque model. It looks, against SARS, it looked that it could work. So we're not absolutely totally bereft. We're almost bereft, but not quite. So now I think the Chinese are working on that too. So I've got great expectations that because of this international um, issue with the way we're all cooperating, that someone will pull an antiviral drug uh, out of the cupboard or discover one new. That can be done quite quickly. The vaccine business is much more difficult uh, although some of the methodologies have shortened things. You've still got a lot of control, a lot of biology to do, a lot of worry about giving a biological to a person. So I don't see a vaccine, of action coming along um, for another maybe 18 months, that, that sort of thing, that's, that's fit and safe. What we have done, and I was very proud about it, um, we began to focus on this pandemic several years ago. In fact, soon after the bird flu started coming up and in, in Hong Kong. And we thought, I look around, looked around and thought, there isn't a monument. There isn't a kind of, the the world is full of monuments to soldiers, mainly men who died in in the First World War. My father was in it. He didn't die, but he was in it. He shouldn't have been in it. Um, And the places come in, every village in Britain. Where is the monument to the 200,000 Britons, English people who died in the pandemic? There isn't one. And so we had an opportunity just behind the London Hospital. There's a church called St Philip's and St Augustine. It's kind of a Victorian church, and in the Second World War, all the glass windows were blown out in a bombing attack. And we had the opportunity of putting them back and getting them redesigned. And so we we got one. My group did one, and we based it on Gauguin, the, the painting I told you about. Where and it's a triptych window in in deep, deep blues. Um, and r- deep reds and, and, and things. It, but it's 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 a wonderful window, and it's the commemorative window for people who died. Um, and it issued a medal to families who helped each other in 1918, and it brought out, most often, it brought out the best in people. Uh, it, it, it issued a memorial medal to doctors and nurses, not only in the hospital, not in the Royal London, but everywhere, who put their lives on hold to help other people but particularly I feel personally it offers a medal to women who in their own homes helped people it was a virus where and I think this is going to be the same if people do die um, there are a lot of people who will die quietly at home and I was finding a a series of letters by a young woman called Gwen a Welsh woman she's 21 I think and she was fine. She was writing to her mother every day. Her mother was in the, another valley in Wales. They'd write back and forth. And three days before she died, when she was, in, you know, she was young, she was in the age group almost, the, um, the mortality was most, she was saying, I'm fine, mum. Dad's a bit worried about me, But don't you worry. You worry about yourself. Um, and she was being looked after by the family. She didn't realise that it was going to be done. And suddenly the letter stopped. I'm fine. I'm fine. Don't you worry about me. You worry about yourself. So this letter, this this memorial, this window, is is called the remembrance of the men and women, particularly the women who died in the Great Influenza pandemic of nineteen eighteen, and who helped each other.
1: That sounds that sounds very beautiful. I'm going to go and check it out next time I'm there. So we'll we'll end it there. But thank you very much. So le- the lesson's mystery is: government should act fast. We should distance ourselves, and and then in within our family units, be, uh, any advice for how we, like, how we can be more like Gwen?
2: Everyone, it's like crowdfunding. You know, everyone does a little bit to get President Obama, give $10 to get him elected. <laughs> you don't need to, just a few squillionaires. Um, everyone can do a little bit here, and I'm, I'm not joking here. Uh, everyone does that a little bit. And if you say, to, what are you doing, Then, Well, right, I'm not going to, I'm not going around the world, I'm not going to flip over to France. I'm going to use fewer aircraft. Air and, and So anything where you could get in contact with people and spread it, if you have got it yourself in, inadvertently, you can do things by, over the next few months, and I think we'll have to take, and I accept your point about the economic hit, so I think we'll have, just have to take that. We're a wealthy country. After all, we are. Um, and, you know, we, we do less travelling. We go to fewer football matches um, and fewer rugby matches. That could be someone's big sacrifice um they look after their grandparents because they could have a jolly good time and their children have a good time they bring home and give a virus to their grandparents which would kill them um so they they keep an eye on that and they behave properly they do not start blaming china for all this and the chinese no one blames britain for starting the pandemic in 1918, and I think we did start it because of all the First World War and the crowding and the things going on and the things at remembrance, of things at the, in 1918 when it finished. Or if, if it started in America, we don't blame America for starting the pandemic, which killed 50 million people. And we cannot blame the Chinese either. Otherwise, we're really going to get into problems here. So I, I'd like to see more careful thought, a lot of careful thought. We can do it. Everyone can do this thought. And also a personal contribution with the hand-washing, the social distancing and all the things we know have worked in the past and can work now. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Dan. All have the history on our shoulders. All
1: this tradition of ours, our school history, our songs, this part of the
2: history of our country, all were gone and finished and liquidated. One child, one teacher, one book and one pen can change the
1: world. He tells us what is possible, not just in the pages of history books,
2: but in our own lives as well. I have faith in you
0: Thirty-six percent better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Get a one-dollar-per-month trial period at Shopify.com/work. Shopify.com/work. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at fifty dollars